Welcome to Zurich Canada's Perspectives Podcast, our thought leadership podcast where we stay connected to our broker partners through conversations on key topics and trends in the industry. My name is Jill Lankin and I'm the General Counsel at Zurich Canada. Today I'm going to be chatting with Alan Young, who's Senior Associate with Tactics, a government relations firm. I just want to start by introducing Alan and giving you some background on his qualifications. Alan started his career in the same way that I did, practicing corporate law on Bay Street. And during that time, he did have some outside positions in the government of Ontario as the executive assistant to the chairman of management board and the minister of financial institutions. Also the financial sector policy branch for the federal department of finance and at a major Ottawa government relations consulting company. In 1996, Alan became the Vice President of Policy with the Canadian Bankers Association. He joined Tactics in 2001, servicing clients in both the financial services and information technology sectors. He left briefly in 2004 to serve as Chief of Staff to the Honorable Reg Alcock. He returned to Tactics in 2005, and in 2006, he volunteered as the Director of Policy and Platform for the Honorable Ken Dryden's campaign to lead the Liberal Party of Canada. So clearly a political junkie, and I'm very excited to have him here today. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jill. It's good to be with you this morning. So let's just jump right into it. Let's go to the recent federal election. Would love to hear your thoughts on that. The 2021 election changed nothing. Prime Minister Trudeau continues to preside over a liberal minority government. The Conservatives remain the official opposition. The Bloc Québécois hold the third greatest number of seats in the House of Commons, and the NDP continue to be the fourth party in the House. So the composition of the House of Commons today looks nearly identical to the House that was elected in 2019. So that begs the question, why did the Prime Minister hold an election this fall? particularly after saying that it would not be wise to have one during the COVID pandemic. Jill, there can be only one answer. The Prime Minister thought he could win a majority government. His internal polling numbers must have held out the hope of a coveted majority. On a personal level, I can understand this thinking. I served as a chief of staff to cabinet ministers in Ottawa and provincially at Queen's Park, And in both cases, I served during a majority government and a minority government. And I can tell you with no hesitation, working with a majority is way better. The government has a greater degree of certainty that its policies and priorities will see the light of day. You know, business leaders crave certainty. So too do prime ministers. You aren't governing with one eye in the back of your head, worrying and wondering, if the opposition will win a vote of non-confidence and trigger an election. You don't have to be in election-ready mode on a constant basis. You can make longer-term plans. So I get the rationale. But I also have a personal theory that might help explain why we had the election this fall. I wonder if the Prime Minister had thoughts of succession planning, at least in the back of his mind. He may have only served as prime minister for six years so far, but think about what has transpired since he first took office in 2015. 
Successfully managing the Canada-US relationship is the single most important foreign policy objective of any prime minister. Justin Trudeau had to deal with Donald Trump in the White House for four years. That had to be a mind-numbing, potentially soul-crushing experience. And of course, for the past two years, he has been dealing with the impact of a global pandemic, trying to find the right balance between protecting the health of Canadians and keeping the economy from falling off a cliff. It must be exhausting. And let us not forget that at the same time, he is a father to three young children. So you add this all up and begin to wonder if he might have thought that having a majority of the seats in the House of Commons would enable a safe, smooth transition to a new Liberal leader a few years down the road, should he choose to do so. At the end of the day, Justin Trudeau wanted a majority. Canadian voters thought otherwise. And so the government will operate in similar fashion to the way it did before the election this fall. I call it a brokerage approach to government. This means the government will look for support for its legislative agenda by brokering agreement with one or more of the opposition parties on a case-by-case basis. They will seek the support of the NDP or the Bloc Québécois on one bill in the House, and they will look to the Conservatives for support on other bills. This is how minority governments have worked historically in Canada, rather than forming formal coalitions. In sum, the newly elected government will, by and large, function just as it did before the election this fall. Okay, great. So if we look at the cabinet appointments, and I think we were waiting for some mandate letters, did those come out? No, we're still waiting for the mandate letters. We've had a number of a number of items come out in recent days. So we've had the speech from the throne uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, we've had the appointment of parliamentary secretaries. We've had the uh, the appointment of cabinet members to various committees. So those those steps have been taken. Uh, the House of Commons is back and running. A couple of House of Commons committees are operating. Uh, the Finance Committee is one of the key ones, and it is starting to to operate as well in the in the House. But we continue to wait for the mandate letters. Those are uh, letters that the Prime Minister and his staff prepare and deliver to each cabinet minister. They set out the top priorities that the prime minister expects each of his ministers to achieve over the next 12, 18, maybe 24 months. So these are important uh, important documents. And it wasn't until Prime Minister Trudeau was first elected in 2015 that these mandate letters were a matter of public record. Every other prime minister kept them secret. Uh, and very few people other than the minister, some of his senior staff and senior officials in each department would know what was in these mandate letters. Interesting. So if we look at the throne speeches, or what can we take away from the throne speeches as, as things we should be paying attention to? So there's there's a series of, of things, Jill, that I would I would say help to paint the picture of what we can expect going forward. So there was the liberal agenda uh, for the for the election. All there are a number of items in their election platform. 
that give us a sense of, of what the new government intends to do. Then there was the speech from the throne, which is a high level document that gives a general sense of, of what the government hopes to achieve in the, in the first 12, 18 months of its existence. And then there's the appointment of cabinet ministers, which also, when you see which minister is going into which department, you get a real sense of, of what the government was hoping to achieve. So when you look at the speech from the throne, the number one issue that was identified was continuing the battle against the COVID pandemic and continuing to encourage Canadians to, to become vaccinated as the best way of dealing with the, with the pandemic, in addition to other public health protocols that we're all very familiar with. Climate change was another key issue that was addressed both in the, in the government's, in the Liberal Party's election platform and also in the speech from the throne. That's not a huge surprise. Uh, this government has been speaking about climate change and, and addressing uh, the impact of, of bad weather, extreme weather, that of course affects your industry uh, significantly, Jill. Yeah. Uh, the issue of Indigenous reconciliation is also a, a key priority, as identified both in the election platform and in the speech from the throne. And then finally, I would say that uh, federal-provincial relations going forward will be a, a considerable considerably important issue going forward. So I always love to hear, you know, your inside scoop opinion on what's, you know, there's the public thing and then there's kind of, you know, what you can read into it. So if we're looking at Trudeau's cabinet appointees, like what can we read into some of his appointments and what his priorities are? Sure. So that, that's all part of the, the same narrative that, that we can glean from the platform, from the speech from the throne and so on. Uh, so when it comes to dealing with COVID, uh, it was time, I think, for, for the government to have a new spokesperson. Uh, the, the original Minister of Health had to deal with the first almost two years of the pandemic. And I think that the, the government just felt that there was a need for a different voice on the file. So a, a highly respected uh, professor of economics, Jean-Yves Duclos from Quebec, has been appointed as the new Minister of Health. And uh, his, his strong academic background and his knowledge of economics will suit him well for that file, but also for future discussions with the provinces and the territories on healthcare funding, which I think will emerge uh, in, in the coming year or so. When it comes to climate change, the appointment of Stephen Gilbeau as the Minister of Environment and Climate Change uh, is as, as stark a, a message as, as the Prime Minister could deliver. And in fact, he was one of the individuals who scaled the CN Tower in Toronto years ago and draped a green piece, a giant green piece flag across the, the CN Tower. Stephen Gilbeau is a well-known environmental activist, not just in Canada, but globally, as being a, a strong advocate on behalf of, of dealing with climate change. So. That was a very strong message. And also sending Jonathan Wilkinson, who was the previous Minister of Environment, to Natural Resources Portfolio, also indicates that there's going to be a champion for environmental issues 
at natural resources, which historically has been at odds with the Department of, of the Environment. So I think in some ways we could say that there are really two ministers of environment and climate change between Stephen Gilbo and Jonathan Wilkinson. When it comes to reconciliation, the prime minister appointed Mark Miller as his new minister of, of indigenous services. And Mark Miller was a member of the prime minister's wedding party. So he's been a close personal friend for a long time. So Mark Miller is, is I believe, respected uh, in his role as uh, being responsible for Indigenous relations going forward. So that was, a, that was a key appointment. And then when it comes to federal provincial relations, dealing with infrastructure and the impact of climate change on critical infrastructure, the appointment of Dominic LeBlanc as the Minister of Federal Provincial Relations and as Minister of, of Infrastructure is a key appointment. And Dominic LeBlanc is a childhood friend of the Prime Minister. Dominic's father was the Governor General when, when Justin Trudeau's father was the Prime Minister. So Justin Trudeau and Dominic LeBlanc basically grew up together in, in high offices in, uh, in Canada. So the Prime Minister has really surrounded himself with people that he's very comfortable with, people like Mark Miller and Dominic LeBlanc that he knows very well. And then when it comes to economic issues, he reappointed Christia Freeland as the Minister of Finance, which I think gives a sense of continuity to Canadians, to the business community, that the Minister of Finance will be in place for, for a number of years. And that, that degree of certainty, I think, gives, gives the business community uh, a, a sense of, of they understand what might happen going forward. So I would say, Jill, those are the, the key appointments and an indication of where the government is placing its priorities. Salon, very, very interesting. It's good to be friends with the Justin Trudeau. It does not hurt. <laughs> so let's let's just pivot a little bit to climate change because obviously a massive issue for uh, the insurance industry, but really just mankind. So in terms of climate change, do you really feel like this government is going to push the needle on it or is there a lot of bluster and lip service? What, what do you think about that? Yes. Yeah, so to be fair, uh, several governments in the past have addressed the issue of climate change. And there are some who would say, well, maybe they didn't go fast enough and far enough. And I think that is fair comment. And I would say, too, that, that it would be fair comment that the, the Trudeau government since 2015 has maybe not moved the needle as far and as fast as, as a lot of people would like. Having said that, I do believe that the government is committed to moving the needle and addressing the issue of climate change in a very serious way. And at the same time, the government wants to put in place a number of, of serious mechanisms to deal with climate, while at the same time recognizing that they can't do too much at the expense of, of, of jobs, at the expense of growing the economy. So there's that continuing dynamic between doing the right thing when it comes to the environment and dealing with climate change and also doing the right thing when it comes to Canadians having jobs and to the Canadian economy continuing to grow. So 
that dynamic is uh, is something that every government has to deal with, and I believe that the the Trudeau government is is a, is prepared to address that sort of balancing act that needs to be done. You can't move too fast, too far at the expense of of eliminating tens of thousands of jobs and and doing damage to the Canadian economy. So there is that that delicate balance that always has to be achieved. So as a corporation operating in Canada, should I feel good about what's happening or a bit worried? I think if you're in the insurance industry, as you are, Jill, you should be worried about the impact of extreme weather on on, on Canada (laughs) when it comes to flooding, when it comes to wildfires. We are seeing those events happening more and more often and, and more serious in their impact on, on Canadians. Uh, so uh, I think the, the, imp- the importance of dealing with climate change is becoming, I would say, top of mind for many Canadians, that it just is important. And I think we're also seeing uh, leaders in the business community wanting to address the issue of climate change. We're seeing the, uh, we're seeing the financial services industry, such as the insurance industry, the banking industry, really taking steps to adjust their investment portfolios to, to deal with, with climate issues. And I, so I think that a combination of the government imposing certain mechanisms and the business community taking steps to, to address climate, I, I feel somewhat confident that that the issue of climate change is being addressed. Fantastic news for us. But I mean, it's no secret that Trudeau and some of the provincial leaders are uh, not the best of friends. Is that gonna be a problem for for what Trudeau is trying to accomplish? It's always the best to have peace, you know, peace in the valley when it comes to federal provincial relations, but it's, it's it's a rare event in Canada. We have a, a confederation that gives the federal government certain authorities and gives provincial governments certain authorities. And sometimes one will overstep the bounds of the other, creating friction on policy issues. And then there, of course, there is the personal side, uh, personal relationships that really matter when it comes to politics. So I think it's no secret that the prime minister and the premier of Alberta aren't the best of friends. I don't think they exchange Christmas cards, but they do have to work together. And so there are, there are, there's a common understanding that at a certain level, we will be taking pot shots at each other, but at the same time, we need to work together to address, address certain issues. So pressure going forward, I believe will be on uh, healthcare funding, COVID has had obviously a significant impact on the healthcare system. We've learned that uh, that hospitals can be over overcrowded very quickly, and that uh, nurses and doctors and other support in the healthcare system need to have greater support. So I think in the next year to year and a half, we're very likely to see a federal, provincial, territorial first ministers meeting. To deal with to deal with healthcare funding, so that that's always uh, uh, for a political junkie like me. It's always fun to watch the dynamic of federal, provincial first ministers meetings. Uh, where at the end of the day, you know, they will they will 
put forward their, their politics and their personalities, but come to an agreement at the end of the day in the best interests of, of Canadians. All right, one more question about climate change before we, we move on to another topic. So, you know, there's the, the priorities of climate change and then Indigenous reconciliation. So how, to me, there's some, could be some conflict or some challenges in kind of navigating both of those priorities. Do you have any thoughts on that in terms of how Trudeau is trying to do that? Yes, so reconciliation with Indigenous peoples and dealing with climate are, are two important issues for Trudeau, as, as we have seen, as we have said uh, uh, previously. Uh, so to, to try and reconcile Indigenous Canadians' attitudes towards climate and, and other Canadians' attitudes towards Indigenous Canadians, it's important to recognize that not all Indigenous peoples uh, have the same views. It's not a homogenous uh, group of Canadians. Like you and me, we have different views, uh, different opinions on how things should be done. So there will be some, uh, some Indigenous communities that are in favor of economic development and building pipelines and, and building roads to, to be able to extract minerals from mines uh, in remote parts of the country. And there will be some Indigenous communities that aren't in favor of that sort of that sort of development. Uh, I think when it comes to dealing with the environment, we have a lot to learn from Indigenous Canadians. Uh, they have a tremendous amount of experience uh, and respect for the land, respect for the air, respect for the water. So I believe that the government, the Trudeau government, is paying attention to the views of Indigenous Canadians when it comes to dealing with climate and that balancing act between the environment and economic development. Thank you, Alan, fascinating stuff. So let's turn to another topic you and I have been tracking, which is, uh, was Bill C-11 the, the privacy legislation, the federal privacy legislation that was introduced well before the election, but, but kind of died on the table. So wanna kind of give you your thoughts on where that's at and where that might be headed. Yes, so Bill C-11, as you said, Joe, was tabled in the previous parliament and it died on the order paper when parliament was prorogued for the election uh, in, in August. Uh, C-11 was the subject of some criticism from experts in, in the privacy world, some in, in the business community, and certainly the privacy commissioner had a number of, of concerns and issues with the bill as it stood uh, earlier this year. Uh, so I think that the, uh, the next bill that we will see, and Minister of Industry, Minister Champagne, did say yesterday that introducing a new privacy bill, the successor to Bill C-11, is a top priority for him, and that we can expect to see a privacy bill introduced in the House of Commons early in the new year. Now, the House returns from its holiday break on January the 31st of next year. And so I think sometime in February, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we see a privacy bill tabled either in February or perhaps in March. And uh, the successor to C-11 will, I believe, be an, an improved product from the previous legislation. Yeah, I'm interested to see what new obligations we'll have. It's certainly a developing area. We've got the provinces, certain provinces jumping in. We've got 
revised federal laws. So it's uh, becoming harder to dabble in and really needing the expertise to navigate these. Absolutely, it's a critically important issue. And, and you know, as uh, with social media, with electronics, uh, the Im impact of privacy rules uh, on, on the business community and the customers of, of a business community, it's important to find the right balance between the, you know, the use and disclosure of personal information by the business community versus the interests of, of individual Canadians and their privacy. It's a, it's a delicate balancing act. Yeah, so I mean, there's a million things we could we could talk for hours, Alan. Uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try to wrap it up. If with a kind of a big question, though, if you if if you're looking ahead to the next two to three years, looking at the political landscape, you know, what should we be paying attention to? What should we be expecting, kind of federally and provincially? Sure. So I'm going to say over the next twelve to eighteen months, uh, looking forward, looking in, into my crystal ball. I would say there are at least five things that we're looking looking at and, and keeping track of. The first one, not to not to be a surprise, is continuing the battle against COVID. Uh, I know that a, a lot of Canadians are feeling fatigue. It's been almost two years that our lives have really been turned upside down, but we're seeing the numbers in Ontario and in Quebec uh, increasing again, uh, despite the fact that you know, a vast majority of Canadians have been vaccinated. At least the impact, the pressure on intensive care units uh, is dropping, but still we're seeing the numbers of, of COVID, uh, COVID positives increasing uh, across the country. So uh, I think that we're gonna continue to have that uh, those public health initiatives in place, those protocols will continue in place. And, you know, the government is gonna continue provincial governments and the federal government are gonna to continue to, to impress upon us the need to maintain those protocols and to get vaccinated. And now looking at, uh, looking at boosters for those who have already been double vaccinated. Another thing we're gonna be looking at is uh, key provincial elections. The, the dynamic, the federal provincial dynamic changes with every provincial election. And the Ontario election is scheduled for June the 2nd of next year. And uh, what will happen uh, in, the, in Canada's largest province has a significant impact on the entire country and on the relations that, uh, that Ottawa has with Queen's Park in Toronto. And the Alberta election has to be held before May of 2023. And there is another uh, important provincial election that will be taking place over the next 18 months or so that will have a Im potential impact on the federal provincial relations and on what happens going forward. And we will see, as I said earlier, I believe we'll see first minister's meeting to address some key issues like healthcare. A third thing we're looking at, Jill, is the uh, leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. Erin O'Toole is facing some pressure from caucus from members of, of the Conservative Party over the performance in the, in the last election in September. Uh, he had shifted the narrative for the Conservative Party away from some of the traditional planks that the Conservatives have been running on in recent elections. And he did that with a view to increasing the support amongst Canadians, particularly in, in urban and suburban uh, communities. And 
unfortunately for the Conservative Party and for Aaron O'Toole, he was unable to win an, any additional seats, even though he had tried to really moderate some of the positions of the Conservative Party going forward. So I think that we're, we're going to be seeing that pressure on Mr. O'Toole's leadership continuing over into the new year until there is a, a resolution of some, of some kind, most likely at a Conservative Party convention where his leadership will be either continued or they will trigger a, a, leadership, uh, a leadership race. The a fourth thing that we're looking at is a much longer term thing that we have seen developing over the decades, and that is the increasing urban-rural divide in Canada. We're seeing, and the, and the politics of the country really, really reflect that urban-rural divide that continues as, as Canadians tend to be leaving rural and remote communities and going into urban and suburban centers. And that's having an impact on the on the election. I'm sorry, on the federal uh, political um, environment as well. It has tended to be that urban voters and and suburban voters tend to vote for liberals or, or new Democrats, and Canadians in rural communities tend to vote conservative. Now that's a generalization, but those are those are tendencies. If you looked at a map of Canada, and and, and looked at it from the perspective of a number of seats in the House of Commons, you would see a large amount of Canada would be conservative blue. But that is reflecting the urban, or sorry, the, the rural and uh, remote community support for that party. And you'd see very little pockets of red support for the Liberals, but those pockets are in Toronto, they're in Montreal, they're in Vancouver, so our largest uh, urban centers that dynamic between urban and rural voters uh, is something that's going to continue. And then the, the last thing we would be looking at, Jill, is the emerging issue of the cost of living and inflation. The Conservatives have really been hammering the government on cost of living issues for several weeks. And the government is understanding that this is a potential Achilles heel for them going forward. So we will be looking at the, the Minister of Finance's economic update on December the 14th for some clues as to how they, the government might be dealing with the cost of living issue. And also in the budget in, in 2022, uh, the government, I believe, will be looking at ways to address the cost of living issues. Now, where, you know, if we're in a fifth or sixth wave of COVID and the government has to you know, spend billions of dollars and supply chains continue to be, uh, to be, you know, their chokeholds in, in supply chains globally, which is causing pressure on prices. You know, the issue of cost of living could just, could just explode as a, as a serious issue for the Liberals to deal with. And the Conservatives are very well placed to, uh, to address that issue and to put the government's feet to the fire on cost of living and inflation. All very interesting. So thank you so much, Alan, for joining us today. I hope our listeners got as much out of it as I did. And thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me, Joe.
Well, that was a great conversation with Alan. I hope you enjoyed it. We got to talk a lot about issues affecting all Canadians, but also issues affecting the insurance industry, specifically climate change, privacy. So as always, feel free to send your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ca.podcast at zurich.com. We hope you have a great holiday season. Take care. in this audio recording was compiled from sources believed to be reliable for general information purposes and is intended for Zurich clients and business partners. The information contained herein may be useful to you or your enterprise when developing your own policies and procedures. The policies and procedures applicable to your enterprise should take into account the specific circumstances of your business and business environment, which is beyond the capacity of this podcast. Any and all information provided is not intended to constitute advice of any nature and is specifically not legal advice, and accordingly, you should consult with your own legal counsel. We do not guarantee that accuracy of this information presented or any results and further assume no liability in connection with this recording and the information provided therein. Moreover, Zurich reminds you that the information provided cannot be assumed to contain every acceptable safety and compliance procedure or that additional procedures might not be appropriate under the circumstances. The subject matter of this recording is not tied to any specific insurance product, nor will adopting these policies and procedures ensure coverage under any insurance policy. We encourage listeners to seek additional information from credible sources. Thank you. This has been a production of TNKR Media. Good talk.